This episode we're going to start off a series on xenophobia and Marxism, hashtag one. This is a series in which we can engage more with this phenomenon which I think has increased exponentially with clear racism towards a certain ethnic group or even more deeper than that, just part of an overall white supremacist, liberalistic. Well, we're going to learn more about it, okay? Put it this way, by the end of the next couple of episodes, I'm going to be able to describe it better, and I know everybody else will, thanks to our guests coming on in and shedding light on this. But just for the layman, what is xenophobia? Xenophobia is written down as anti-Chinese sentiment or xenophobia involves sentiments such as hatred or fear of China and relative countries, its people, its diaspora, or its culture. It often targets Chinese minorities living outside of China and involves immigration, development or national identity in neighbouring countries, diaspora of wealth, the past central tributary system, majority-minority relations, discrimination and racism. Basically, being a bad human being and, and thinking that where you are born in the world and the consequences of like some genetics in your skin color from pigmentation for the skin and all of that i mean this is just an absurd notion we had to tackle obviously you've got late stage imperialism you know i've seen increasingly in my experience just this rise and this hatred towards like chinese people and i've always just literally thought obviously because i'm a conscious human being and i've got empathy and i'm not like a horrible human being individualist like i've always just thought i just can't believe what it would be like to like browse reddit for example just reddit never mind nothing else and be like chinese or of an asian background which people often confuse out of desperation because they seek any kind of joy and laughter they can so they mock even minorities and as far as they can I mean it's fucked so that was my ramble it's genuinely pissed me off to tell you the truth I completely feel for you feel for all of our comrades feel for anybody who suffers against racism it's absurd but we're going to talk more about what's caused this rise if there has been a rise why how can we combat it but before we get into that and unless you've got any comments to make first we'd just like to get to know our guests first so could you just tell us you know who you are and tell us about your background please Gigi okay uh hi I'm Gigi I am a hmm, ethnically Chinese Malaysian American very complicated I'm ethnically Chinese but my nationality is Malaysian and American dual citizenship I currently live in America pretty much working class I work as a homeschool teacher and as a waitress so that definitely influences a lot of how I view the class system as well as my parents' background from being Chinese the diaspora of several generations and how we've just moved across the world. And um, another important part about me, I guess, is that I am a Taoist and a Buddhist. So my religious views definitely influence a lot of what I think about the revolutionary and imperialism, because I find that Taoist philosophy and Buddhist philosophy fit very well with Marxism and leftism. Yeah, that's just a little bit about me. 
That was interesting just to show your work experience gives you a perspective on society and it is more brought out, especially in like that service system, which even your role as a server comes from the role of like a servant because you're just sitting down and you're being served food. It's just that what capitalism has done over time is allow through the exploitation of each other's labor is allow even working class people to have that same service of having servants, you know, as long as you can afford it. I've always just thought of that kind of thing because it, like, you even see, like, the managers I've always tried when I've worked in that kind of sector is called the boss, the bourgeoisie, and all the capitalists and, like, get that in people's minds because people are constantly walked about being called, like, you know, servants, essentially, or waitress, like, you're waiting on somebody to be, like, with, I mean, it's device on how the ruling class people just live they don't cook themselves food they've got chefs and they have servants basically doing everything like you say it's just being capitalized on so I, I, I don't know if you if you meant any of that by what you said but that's just certainly some of the experience i've had from that kind of sector yeah definitely part of that but also my parents own the restaurant that i work in and it's a very like small establishment and there's only a couple of employees. But the way we run it is much more like a co-op than like a traditional business. So I think my experience is definitely mm. different because we all of us there, you know, most of the people who work for us have known us for over 10 years and we all live together and we eat together. And so I think that experience is definitely different from like the normal, you know, if you work at any fast food chain server or a slightly bigger franchise of any kind, definitely influences my experience because, you know, my experience working as a server as, you know, somebody who does a little bit of everything, not just like the serving part because it's run like a co-op. You know, I compare my experience to a lot of other people and their experience is so much worse. And my idea, you know, growing up, having grown up in a restaurant, like a very typical like Chinese experience was these kind of serving jobs are so nice. Like everyone's like family. Nobody was being exploited. But then you hear about all these stories of like, oh, people getting paid in America, at least like less than minimum wage and then having to rely on tips people that worked for us never had to do that and i was kind of shocked when that happened like when i learned about that later in life more like high school when i started talking to more of my friends that also worked in serving jobs and i was just like why why is it run that way and i didn't even realize that my experience was atypical of the working class you know serving experience and also just growing up when my parents started opening up more to me about the exploitation of workers from abroad, work trafficking is a huge issue. We are Southeast Asian, we're Sino-Southeast Asian. And most people who come to America as like migrant workers or just restaurant workers don't realize they're being trafficked. But when somebody uses that word and then mentions that the people who are trafficking them are like their own people, they get very defensive. And I think there was like a, there was a whole TikTok fiasco of people attacking one TikToker for mentioning that exploiting migrant workers and like in the nail and restaurant industry is so common within Southeast Asian populations. And they took her completely out of context and were like, you're accusing all Vietnamese people of being human traffickers, which isn't her point at all. But she was saying that like a lot of people in nail shops in the restaurant business 
they are trafficking people. It's just not in the very typical trafficking that you see in sex trafficking. People have such a narrow view of what trafficking is. And my parents were victims of like work trafficking when they first came to America, but they don't recognize it as that because there's such a narrow definition. And because work is so easily exploited that they think this is just an obligation, that this is just normal when it really is not. For example, you're in Southeast Asia and you want to come out to America and you get a sponsor and they say like, we'll provide you with like a visa and we'll let you work here and you'll get money whatever but then you come here and you're trapped in that job and they say oh like you can't work here i'll ship you off to somewhere else my friend needs help and you go there but then you're forever trapped in this cycle because if your sponsor like pulls back on anything you're out of the country you're being forced to work basically in a certain situation but they think oh this is my only chance to stay so they're stuck in a situation they're not being like physically forced with a gun to their head but they're being threatened with their livelihood and that itself is human trafficking and work trafficking but people don't recognize it as that and i think that there was this whole misunderstanding within like the twitterverse and the tiktok world where people were understanding this like fundamental idea that trafficking and forced labor just means you don't have a choice but that's kind of all of us within capitalism we we all are forced to work otherwise we cannot survive but there, it was just this very specific like work trafficking issue. And I think that's why it was my parents' experience of being like shipped around like that in restaurants. Like that's not how they wanted to run their business. I think that definitely influenced how I view how to run a business if I were ever to run one because like capitalism and survival or whatever. And, and I really respect them for having turned such a bad experience into something positive for the people around them. But it's so sad continuing to see the people running in the same work circles being trafficked and there's not really much you can do about it because you know a lot of times they don't even recognize it is kind of what i keep circling back to is the narrow definition of what consensual labor is and not even within work trafficking but both in capitalism and its system as a whole wow really interesting points that you brought out and you also concluded it very accidentally and and if i can just with maybe some of my experience like i want to say that like one of my like lovers in life has been from an Asian background. Like her, her family came over from Hong Kong and started a business. And yeah, I know from experience over many years we spent time together. She's never struggled financially. She's always been able to enjoy and, and do things and travel and never been like so heavily exploited by like her parents and and work and that's like a cultural thing because it's like her family have got other businesses and they live pretty good lives they put the hard work in for it all just for the kids and that love and i think that what we're talking about is cultural differences in family relationships i think maybe people from an asian background chinese are more (laughs) they care about the family so much in in the sense like maybe a bit more whereas like over here you taught that you should only do so much for your kids and you should let the state worry about that or if the kids don't do that then there's this kind of punishment and it's like a different atmosphere what i'm talking about is like a more of a nuclear family versus i don't know more of this like communal family i think about this more so with like muslims really the way they have their families like extended families like they care for like their grandparents and their great grandparents so much more than we do here like over here we're just told to put them in like care homes and worry about ourselves and do our own house and you know let the state just care about the elderly it's just all of those things provide another market opportunity right like if the sort of 
cultural idea is that you ship your elderly people off to care homes, then that allows you know care homes to exist, right? And the same thing is like all walks of life. Ultimately, like in in the US, they always talk about like sending kids to like a military camp or whatever. So that allows those to exist or it's like boarding schools. And if you're shipping people off there, then you know, obviously that's just essentially providing business, right? Like it's a, it's an opportunity for someone somewhere. Well, the nuclear family, at least in American history, you know, the such a strong idea of having a nuclear family and only having two generational homes, like the parents and the kids is kind of correlated with the rise of suburbs as well, mm-hmm. right? They wanted to sell more houses. So they marketed the idea of like, these nuclear family homes and then the older people of course didn't have anywhere to move off to and then back in the 50s or something Mm -hmm. you know your grandparents could take care of the kids or the mom could take care of the kids and the dad could work and provide for the family but then as capitalism has gone further you know the elderly don't live with us and like help with the children anymore the way that it used to be with less individualist nuclear families and one person's income isn't enough to sustain a family. So it's just all this late stage capitalism is really popping up because of, you know, the quick fixes. Like we want more money now within the kind of getting people to take out mortgages and developing suburbs and isolating. Well, the the other thing about suburbs is like it was used to push people of color out of neighborhoods and have insular white communities around cities, right? Definitely. So like the whole idea of suburbs was also racist yeah i mean oh definitely i mean suburbs suburbs themselves we can talk about for ages right like this is a shout out back to the trip episode when we talked about like right at the end we briefly touched on you know suburbs and how they are essentially like a neo-colonial project but like domestically within the actual country themselves i mean obviously there's redlining obviously they were you know developed with the sole idea of uh you know excluding basically any minority that's not white out of those areas I think the most important role they play is in ideological um, reproduction. So because now that you've got those suburbs, what you can do is you can sell them to people as part of the like American dream, right? So now you're essentially getting people to buy into this system and um, essentially getting them to consent to, you know, whatever work, whatever it may be, right? You're selling them on this myth of the sort of um, white picket fence and the, the lawn, right? You know, for this talking about segregation and separation, let's just bring us all together. That's what this is about. So to go back to the script, like, how did you get into politics, Gigi? Do you subscribe to any specific tendency? And if so, what one and why? Yeah, so like I mentioned before, I am Taoist and Buddhist, and I grew up going to monasteries on retreats and just meditating and learning texts and the Pali canon and stuff like that. And my parents were, you know, we have our own practice that we stick to pretty regularly. And so a lot a lot of that kind of Buddhist Taoist philosophy is about how everything is ephemeral and how all of us are interconnected and how, you know, the concept of in a very like watered down way, like karma, everything comes back to you, everything's connected. You can also connect that to like chaos theory if you want to get scientific and mathematical. But all that kind of influenced my way of thinking, my view of how the world should work, how people should interact and help each other and with the world around them is also something that's very important within Taoist and Buddhist philosophy because we are everything around us. And so capitalism and just the way the American democracy, quote-unquote democracy, works is not very conducive to that kind of idea. And then it also being 
queer and being a person of color in a country that hasn't been very kind to my people just pushed me to look for something that was a material solution for everything that me and the people around me were suffering because suffering is also like a central idea within buddhism right to escape Mm -hmm. samsara to escape the suffering so what is the material way to do this and the material way to help the people around me because that's how you practice right it's not necessarily about you just pray it's about what are, are are you doing with your life what is your dao what is your path your way and in that way i guess i started you know i've always been very philosophical because of this religious philosophy reading like the tao te ching and stuff like that like religious texts led me to communism and marxism and how you know reading karl marx and everything he wrote aligned so much materially and with what i want from like a philosophical standpoint and i guess that's just kind of how i got into everything even though of course it wasn't like the first thing i approached but it was what i ended up looking into more i guess further into my activism i went to like an inner city school so racism was something that i was very concerned with and kept getting involved in like smaller things and i guess that all just kind of built up to my like subscription to like marxist thought though i i do like what mao has said about a lot of things as well so that's generally what i think in my kind of ideology but i i think i am very much a buddhist and a taoist before i am a communist but in some way materially they're one and the same in practice Honestly, it sounds like our paths have been somewhat similar in that, you know, like I'm also a Zen Buddhist or not also, but I am a Zen Buddhist. And I actually like came to sort of revolutionary politics through that, basically. So like, you know, transience and nothing being permanent and also just sort of like opposites in, in some sort of way, like it sort of fit with dialectics for me. The way that I found that was through learning about dialectics and then you realize oh yeah there is actually this thing called dialectical materialism and then i actually sort of started you know reading marx etc right so it sort of made real the things that you can sort of read about in buddhism but you might not necessarily relate to or sort of have any like actual connection to but yeah just dialectics alone to me makes sense you know the idea of like transience and then you realize that there are opposites but then it can also just be if you just want to take historical materialism, right? Like the engine of history is essentially class struggle. Yeah, it's a very, it, it just makes real that concept, right? Uh, for me, at least. Yeah, definitely. I, I think because a lot of Buddhist writings seem more philosophical and airy and Marxism, right. I think with his writings, especially, he uses like real examples of things happening around us. And it really puts into perspective, like the material effects of all this philosophy, that it's not just a battle within our minds and ourselves, but it's also a battle with society and all of the world around us, especially like nature and not just human society, but how we interact with the world. And like you see that connection with global warming and how class struggle and the exploitation of nature has led us to where we are with late stage capitalism, as well as just in, in Buddhist philosophy, understanding that you are a product of everything around you as well. Like that interconnectedness makes so much sense. Absolutely. Oh, yeah, definitely. And 
it just goes on to the point that we are human beings. Human beings didn't evolve out of politics. We evolved out of knowing an environment and being conscious of it. It's the only way we survive, but instead we're building this insane system, this roller coaster that's driving us down to goddamn extinction and nobody's got control of it. There's no brake system. There's only like more gas, literally. I think humans have just kind of thought they're invincible at this point that they just can keep moving forward with innovation without looking further into how it all relates back to us and how it can backfire and bite us in the ass so that's kind of what technology has done in the past hundred years yeah i mean definitely but also you know the idea that they can get away with anything is like real to them right because yeah. they do literally get away with anything right like they are ultimately like the gods of the society really i mean they really do get away with anything right they like they don't go to prison they can do anything they want so why wouldn't they think that you know, like the matter of accountability right yeah for sure so there's sort of there's sort of like no reason for them not to think that they can get away with anything right because they mm-hmm. kind of can like <laughs> Yeah, that that kind of brings me back to accountability kind of brings me to the idea of like anarchy and the idea of like, do we want socialism before communism? Or do we want just to not have a transitory period before we just go full out communism anarchy? And I I think with a path of socialism, I, I think we do need some adjustment, because at this point in time everyone's ideology is so different and then also a lot of people still have all this internalized racism and like internalized doctrine from you know the capitalist society if we were to just let it go i think people would let that drive them in doing things and that wouldn't be very good for the people who you know have suffered under this system and that's also why i kind of subscribe to maoism and his idea of the transitory period and mobilizing the petit bourgeois even though they eventually may turn against us (laughs) yeah definitely i mean i think you're more correct than you know right because like i think the thing i like most about mao is the idea of the cultural revolution right so like everyone before him talked very matter of fact about the revolution required in the base which is obvious right like the revolution pertaining to productive forces this is fairly obvious right but i think The real genius of Mao was in understanding that actually it's not just the base here that requires a revolution, right? The actual superstructure itself requires an actual revolution because people hold these ideas and they carry them with them. And even if you were able to sort of revolutionize the productive forces, if the people don't understand them, if the people don't have the knowledge, they don't know how to interact with it, they don't know what they're doing within the society, right? Then this whole project definitionally will not succeed, right? So the idea that there actually has to be a revolution within the culture itself, right? Within the ideas, the opinions that the actual people hold is um, just as important as actually revolutionizing the productive forces. It brings it back to basically why we're doing this again, because they've stepped up their racism towards Chinese people, people of Asian backgrounds. They've also, again, heightened their own contradictions and forced people to just say, this is insane, what's, what's happening, it's escalating. And now we're speaking out against it because we have to, because we have to counter their death culture. I'm just sort of just going off the dome with things I'm thinking as I'm thinking of them, right? But I also think it's important to note, when we talk about you know, hatred for any group of people, ultimately. These ideas within class society, within, you know, any society controlled by the bourgeoisie, right? These ideas are ultimately bourgeois ideas. So like the idea that you should, you know, hate Asian people for any reason is an idea of the bourgeoisie, right? This idea comes from the bourgeoisie because now they're ramping up from this sort of 
for this new Cold War, ultimately, right? Like China is now the big enemy of the United States. You know, subsequently, that idea filters through the media and ultimately into the into the heads of um, just the general population, right? So it's fucked up culture and like speaking of other insane cultural terms like Gigi can I ask of your background now one of the last questions on it are you American I recently found out that Asian American is an actual term that people use in America like so are you Asian American and like if so what's it like being dual nationality with Asia and America what what the fuck does this mean? Can you shed some light on this thing for me? Yeah, definitely. I think, hmm, I have a very conflicted feeling about the term Asian American because the, the term Asian American was born out of reaction from the term Black American, African American during the civil rights movement because a lot of Asian leftists within America, Asian socialists and communists started seeing you know, that there was the ability to mobilize and unite large groups of people suffering the same things under a single term and a single identity and, you know, weaponizing that identity for good, for unity, to push back against white supremacy and the bourgeois. And in that way, I think that the intentions of the term Asian American was, you know, before that, it was just the Vietnamese Americans, the Chinese Americans, the Japanese Americans, and they didn't see their identity as something that connected them, even though a lot of the things they were suffering were from were the same, because they're all just going to view you, as long as you look East Asian, you're all right. Chinese or just Japanese or yeah. something. So they, in seeing how African Americans had united under a single identity, under a single banner, a lot of... Asian American leftists started organizing with the Black Panthers and came up with the term like yellow peril supports black power. And that's how the term Asian American has started. It was a leftist radical term and not everyone accepted it at first, but like every other leftist radical term it has been co-opted by liberals. And now it's become this kind of badge of honor to be like, oh my gosh, I'm Asian American, hashtag boba, hashtag like import car scene, whatever. <laughs> and it's kind of lost. It's wow. value in organizing. And, you know, now when you say you're, I'm Asian American, it's almost like being reduced to the model minority or something. And as the term Asian American has kind of gone through time, it's begun to include more types of Asians, which is an amazing thing. You also get, because of the liberalism of it, it's been reduced to like, well, now all these struggles between the different types of Asians and how it also kind of helps perpetuate like xenophobia, like light skinned Asians think they're so much better than like the dark skinned Asians. And therefore that's racism. It's like, it's like a colorism thing, which is again, a product of colonialism. And so it has more problems now than it did in the past. I respect the history of it. But when somebody mentions like straight up off the bat that they're Asian American as an identity marker is when I'm hesitant of that person, not of the term, but their use of the term, I think, matters mm. more. So when I say I am an Asian American within leftist circles and identifying that we as a region have suffered under colonialism and neocolonialism and everything like that, that I don't mind. You know, that's a good thing. That means that Asia as a region is uniting against white supremacy. But if somebody I just met off the street or, you know, has in their profile of some sort of social media, I'm Asian American, then I'm like, but what are you saying about your Asian Americanness? 
blow me away with that answer there, especially with the history on that. That was really interesting. Yeah, I mean, tying the history on with how people act today, that's something that obviously should be considered. But we do know that we need solidarity in this motherfucker instead of separation. We don't just want to be a flawed, failed philosophy. We want to be a scientific one that learns from the past and, and go into the future better. My days. We actually arranged to do this episode before the mass shooting recently. What did you think of this mass shooting by this absolute cretin of a person who's just gonna? I hope he. I mean, where to begin on something like that? The madness, <laughs> the, the madness of, of such an event against people that he considered to look Asian. Are you surprised by that event, by that shooting, and like? What was your initial reaction or like the reaction of other people around you, which you observed? I don't think I was surprised at all. I think, you know, deep down, I knew something like this would happen eventually. And it was just a matter of time, considering how everything was ramping up and all the xenophobia was ramping up within the country. And so when it did happen, you know, I was deeply saddened. I was angry. And the first thing I did as somebody who was like, you know, involved in politics and activism was to perform activism and to educate people and try to talk about these issues and content creation, you know, was the first thing I jumped to. And I I don't think I gave myself time to mourn and feel sad and feel scared because I work in a service industry, my parents work in a service industry, I know this could be something that could happen to us as well, you know, it's very close and personal. And like, even as I'm saying it now, it doesn't really feel real. Uh But yeah, my first reaction was just to, you know, organize and educate, especially since, you know, a lot of liberals jumped on the chance to be like, hashtag stop AAPI hate, stop Asian hate, stop Asian violence, hate is a virus, Um, we are not the virus, stuff like that and recognize it, in it only as like an anti-Asian hate crime while foregoing that this is specifically like xenophobia that drove it because he assumed like they were all Chinese. The virus and his own, you know, the ideas of like the sexualization of Asian women also drove him to this. It's just a bunch of different factors. And I was very angry with the response of a lot of like liberal organizers was to water it down to just a single reason, as if that can explain away the event when it was a huge mess of different factors it's imperialism and colonialism and those ideas filtering into our society and our culture so that it allowed for an environment where you know he could think like oh just killing a bunch of people that i think are chinese that i have a sex addiction to or whatever you know i'm killing off temptation when, you know, first of all, sex addiction isn't a real thing. Sex dependency is. It's not going to kill you if you don't have sex. Uh-huh. Um, and if, if you look at, like, from where he traveled initially all the way to the massage parlor, there were, like, 10 strip clubs on the way that he could have gone to. So it was very specifically, like, anti-Asian. Mm. But it was just, like, the rhetoric of the COVID virus within America also didn't help with, like how people view East Asians now. It doesn't matter if you're Chinese or not. I've been seeing these shirts being sold that says, I'm not Chinese, I'm Vietnamese. I'm not Chinese, I'm Korean. I'm not Chinese, I'm Japanese. Which is like 
fucked up beyond belief yeah. that you're going to throw other people under the bus. If you're going to use the term Asian American, cool. you better include all Asians, you know? So just stuff like that. I saw a lot of things like that popping up around the time. And I, I think I spent so much energy trying to dispel those myths and to get people to understand that it's more than just Asian hate, that it's a complex mix of different factors as a result of like white supremacy and colonialism and imperialism that led to the environment where, you know, this man would go out and kill Asian women because he feels entitled to their bodies. So that was kind of my reaction. I don't know. I mean, I, I actually, I can only imagine like the, if they're even capable of cognitive, like recognizing cognitive dissonance, like the amount of cognitive dissonance that liberals must have been going through at that time has to be insane. Because one week, mm-hmm. they're essentially pushing like Chinese Uyghur myths, like China devil, China's the worst. And then the next week, they have to be all like, you know, once a shooting takes place, they have to be all stop hate, stop Asians. Blah, blah. And then the week after, <laughs> they're going to go right back to China devil, China the worst. Yeah. It, it, it makes absolutely no sense. The way the media covered it is not only fucked up, but the way that people came to his defense in a strange way is fucked up. Like the most common one I saw was like, oh, no, 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 you don't understand. He wasn't racist, right? He didn't target these people because they were Asian. He targeted them because they were women. And that somehow Which to people- Which doesn't make it any better. <laughs> no, it's, it's, not, it's not any better at all. It's insane. How is that a def- how, how does anyone even think that's a defense, right? Like, how do you even arrive at that position? You, you must be thinking like, oh, no, no, you, you don't understand. It's not because he was racist. It was because he's a misogynist. Like, <laughs> how, that's not, a de- first of all, that's not a defense at all. You can't say, oh, no, no, you don't understand. I don't hate these people. I did it because I hate this other group of people. Politics of the ante strikes again. Well, I mean, it is politics of the ante, but it's also just like, they don't... It. I don't know. It, it's just so insane. The whole thing is so ridiculous. Like, it not only... It's ridiculous, and yeah, we're laughing, because if we don't laugh, we'll fucking cry. But seriously, like, as far as I'm concerned, actually genuinely picked up to a point where it's, like, historic in, in our lives, um, in particularly. So, TD is this xenophobia like a recent problem do you think like if you always grew up in america so is it a recent problem did it escalate from a certain time in particular or like at least in like your lifetime no i feel like xenophobia in america is as american as anti-blackness you know for sure xenophobia has existed because we're like descended from the british and like since the opium wars i don't know if you guys know this but america also signed treaties, quote unquote, with China modeled after the British treaties for the opium war, because they also wanted to share. The exploitation of China is a very American thing as well. The largest lynching in American history was Chinese workers, like rail workers in San Francisco, I think it was, because of the fear that they were stealing jobs, you know, (laughs) again, xenophobia and stuff. Xenophobia has existed for a long time in our culture. It just kind of, I guess, morphed as immigration changed, as the demographics changed. I think recently the outward display of it has been more blatant because of the COVID-19 rhetoric. You know, people are saying, oh, it's because of Trump. Like, no, it's not because of Trump. Trump just said what everyone else was thinking, you know, very publicly. He exacerbated it for sure, but he is not the cause. I think people, a lot of liberals are so fixated on like, Trump bad, therefore he elected Biden and everything's okay now. Mm -hmm. Um, It's just recently that a lot of physical violence has been happening. But I remember when I was younger, you know, I 
would get bullied and like a lot of mean shit was said about like me being Chinese or whatever. I remember getting into a fight about it. Cops got called like it was pretty bad. How old was you then? I was 14 when that happened. Yeah. Have you ever experienced like racism earlier than that? My most blatant violent encounter with like face-to-face encounter with like xenophobia and like violence there was in high school somebody was like making fun of me like pulling their eyes back and saying stuff and I've always been kind of a hothead so I must have said something back I don't know what I said I just remember like screaming back at them and I remember at the end of the day I start hearing rumors being like oh he's gonna fucking shank that chick and I was like oh shit, like I got to defend myself. And I didn't want my parents to worry like that. For some reason, that was like the first worry in my head was like, I can't let my parents know, like they'll worry about me. So my reaction was, let me bring a knife to school. If he's going to shank me, I might as well shank him first. I remember sneaking it past metal detectors and bag checks and the cops and like the drug sniffing dogs because we had those in school. Very dystopian. Yeah. And I remember he... The whole school day, I was fine. And then at the end of the school day, going to the buses, I think I was like 14 at the time. He must have been about 18. He was like a senior. Um, Him and like a gang of friends like walked up to me and like started shouting shit and like threatening me and just making fun of me. And I think, I don't know if I was scared or angry or some combination of both. I took the knife out and, you know, I guess that's all they saw. Did you shank him? Did you give him one like, oh, <laughs> fucking racist scum? But we had like a police station in our school, so they just called the cops and they came. And I just pulled the, oh, I'm a defenseless little 60 pound, 14 year old, <sighs> chinky Asian girl <laughs> and got away with it. But like thinking back on it, it's like, wow, like how fucked up is the system that, wow. you know, that happened? No, seriously. And then most yeah. recently, with like the xenophobic events, like my parents own a restaurant, we've had people like, Somebody broke our front door and, like, because, oh, you're a virus, like, get the fuck out, shit like that. At some point, somebody had, like, taken, like, a huge, like, diarrhea shit in our bathroom, like their kid did, and they smeared shit on the walls as, like, revenge for what you've done to us. And I'm just like, the fuck did I ever do to you? I just gave you food, like... Oh, my God. So, just stuff like that, like, those are the most, you know, the events that left like bigger impressions on my mind but you know the little microaggressions have always existed oh my god i'm so sorry but thank (laughs) you for sharing that it's just what you shared was the fact that you know a young person feels so anguished by society so upset so let down so alienated just so ostracized from the the place where they should be comfortable just like every other goddamn kid it's like they feel none of it and they're being told it's because they're not the same and that's what you can be forced doing is bringing a night to school doing silly things you know only silly because if you get caught then you get fucked basically you fucked up your life it goes down on your record can be hard to find other schools because you've lost your temper at one point you do things which you wish you could reverse time on and that's how fucked up our society is. That's what what it forces people to do. But these are just kids who have done nothing but grow up and then be just good people, good citizens, good Americans, whatever it is where they are. The people just want to get by. And, you know, there was even that video recently with this 
politician or something in America where he'd, he'd like took off his T-shirt, didn't he? And he's showing the scars, showing that he was a patriot for America, was a, you know, fought in these wars and damaged his body physically forever. And it's like, you know, you can... You can play ball all day long, but this ingrained racism's there. And what you're describing is, yeah, I've still got these microaggressions laughing off. You know, this disparate racism which you're living through, and we should all be deeply humbled and like deeply upset that you've you've opened up and shared that this with us. I mean, solidarity, sister. Hey, my heart goes out to you. It's fucked up. That's why I wanted to ask about if it was in your lifetime or whether it was simply just from these, you know, Uyghur myths, you know, the COVID and bourgeois media that, like, the State Department's, like, intentionally tried to get the public to, like, hate and blame China for most of, like, the US's problems today. So, yeah, so, I mean, the follow-up question was, have you personally experienced racism from this or noticed any upset in it? Of course, you did. You gave explicit details, too explicit for some people, I'm guessing. But yeah, that just shows you how shitty racism is in, in like a serious sense. I think you you mentioned like about you know the Uyghur myths and COVID nineteen ramping up the racism, and it, it definitely has. I think you know with the rise of Chinese social socialism America feels threatened even more by China and as a result Chinese citizens and therefore the propaganda has gotten worse and we have faced more hate and I think that's a testament to you know how powerful the Chinese diaspora can be because you know we have been suffering so many abuses from the global north that seeing our home country, seeing Asia rising in power in some way is going to, you know, move some people to join the movement and be more positive towards China, which is threatening like American power. Mm. And I think that's part of the reason why a lot of the hate has been ramping up because it's also some sort of fear, right? The idea of yellow peril is that we're dangerous in some way. Yeah, And now it's just specified to specifically like Chinese laborers. I mean, I guess that history of it's been the fault of Chinese laborers has existed since Chinese laborers came to the U.S., but yeah. I see it getting worse now. Totally. I think that what I was referring to, which you helped clear up, was that like I've personally only noticed as a goddamn what white man on the internet, a sexy white man nonetheless, on the internet... And I've seen this upsurge in it myself. And then that's when I was overwhelmed. Like, this is insane. But obviously, if I, you know, happened to look Asian, I'm pretty sure I would have fucking heard of, you know, racism towards me, you know, a lot sooner than that. So it does just bring back to where the state is at in far as it wants to have, you know, racist rhetoric to fall back on to defend its own inhumane practices and like diplomatic, humanitarian economic and social governance then that's why we need socialism like we can actually talk about that incident for a, a little more if you want like you know the i can't remember i don't know who he was but the the elected official who you know stood up wherever he was right because it's a very strange thing because he's like trying to he's, he's like trying to use like one of the the sort of cudgels of american culture like yeah. nothing is stronger in the american culture than like war culture right the idea that like you know troops get the utmost respect like troops are you know they're loved and everything 
Um, and he was, you know, he's essentially saying, you know, because I shed blood for the country, you should now respect me, which it's, it, uh, there's, there's just so many things to say. And it's so strange. No, it's like, I was left, does the, that same meme for the tone trailer where it's got that, that scene from Starship Troopers where. Uh-huh. What about you, son? Infantry, sir. Good for you. Mobile infantry made me the man I am today. But like the fella's on a wheelchair, he's lost like an arm, mm-hmm. two limbs, and it's like it's a great he's film. made him the man he is. Yeah, like he's physically half a man because of like this imperialist exploitation over his body and what he's just simply serving bureaucratic fucking mega lifestyle so other people can live like goddamn gods on planet Earth today before they annihilated by an arrangement of means. Starship Troopers is um, a satire on American Empire. Like, I think less people know that than they should. Like, if you go into the director's cut of that film, what's his name? Van Hoven? Van Hoven, I think that's his name. He literally talks, like, all about, you know, the exploits that America have committed all around the world. Like, he talks about Haiti. He talks about everything. Like, he just essentially goes through, like, all of American history and just talks about, like, all the evil that that country has essentially um, just committed on the planet. But watching that event, you know, was very strange because you shouldn't need to have joined the army in order to get any respect from the people there. But it's also because that guy, he's like a Republican. So he understands that, like, if if you're related in any way to the military, then you just can't be touched. So he's essentially trying to, like, use the cudgel of the military to try and defend himself from other people but it's like specifically defending himself is also the other issue, right? Right, right, and, right and, then, and then the fact that you even have to say like, oh, I sacrificed this, therefore I should matter. It's like Definitely. the forever endearing idea that like immigrants have to be contributing something specific to the country for them to matter within this country or whatever. Right. Like, shouldn't it be enough that I am human, I exist, therefore I matter as much as anyone? Which brings me back to, like, the whole, like, Black Lives Matter thing and then white people being like, well, no, all lives matter. It's like someone has a paper cut. Like, you have a paper cut, someone got shot, and you're, and that person's bleeding. You're like, I'm bleeding too. Right. Okay. <laughs> we're not, like, saying that we're not. We're just saying that person's dying and you're not, so we're going to care about them first. But I, uh, it's just that that dissonance of, like, you know exactly what they mean. You just choose to ignore it. Yeah. Right. And it is, yeah, it's deliberate ultimately, right? Like they're not interested in an actual discussion on the topic, right? Like th- those kinds of things aren't in good faith, essentially, mm-hmm. right? They're not like, oh, let's actually have a genuine conversation about these things. Like, no, it's a propaganda piece, right? Like yeah. the whole of the, the, the whole of the movement, like they know what they're doing. I often wonder how things like that get started because it, it's, it has to either be one of two things, right? It has to be like a deliberate creation by, you know, some kind of intelligence agency or something, or it just came from, like some well-meaning person out there who thought they were either being smart. I feel like it's probably somebody just trying to be smart. <laughs> probably. I feel like that happens a lot. People kind of run with things and it becomes snowballs out of their control. That definitely happens. Fucked up. We should just literally all be combating racism. If you see it, speak out against it. Put your goddamn body in the way of, of racist violence. Show people it's not to be tolerated and you got to defend it in all ways, shape or forms. But Gigi, can we just ask you if you got any messages for our listeners? Like, And how can we like support and combat xenophobia? And why is it important? 
I think a lot of people, you know, I, I kind of fall trapped to this too, where I am so focused on like getting the message out there and educating people on social media and all these different organizing platforms. When in reality, a lot of times it's the people closest to you, you know, because you're connected to one person, they're connected to someone else, your circles of influence all overlap and eventually you get the message out. I think a lot of people, you know, you see a lot of like liberal organizers with really conservative parents and they never talk about the things through the conservative parents, but like they can make a huge impact mm. just talking to their parents and talking to the people around them and trying to change their ideas. It's just the smallest thing mm. sometimes that matter the most. And I think the Atlanta shootings really humbled me in that you know, so many people were doing so much to help. And I was trying to do my best to help. And at the end of the day, I always feel like I wasn't doing enough. And I just want to tell some people like, there's a lot of people in the revolutionary movement, there's a lot of class consciousness happening around us. There's a lot of like spiritual awakenings happening around us. It's, it's, we're living in a very bizarre time that whatever you are doing is, I think, to some degree, like enough, like you don't have to push yourself too far. We don't want burnout. We want people to be able to stay in this movement and last a long time, like kind of how everyone jumped on the hashtag BLM thing last summer, and they think it's over when it really isn't. You know, prolonged organizing is the only thing that's going to be able to push revolution on all levels of class and society. I guess that's like a little self-promo. Um, one project that I'm involved in is the WeChat project. It's on Instagram and it's on WeChat, obviously, because there is a lot of right-wing misinformation within WeChat. WeChat's kind of like the Facebook for conservatives, but within like the Chinese-American or like the Chinese diaspora community. And so there's a group of mostly college students who are working to actively combat those narratives with you know, more liberal, progressive viewpoints. They're not exactly leftist, but it's like a start, you know? The WeChat Project is reaching out to like the members within our community and combating anti-Blackness and like kind of an anti-Chinese sentiment within the Chinese community. And I think, you know, stuff like that is important, just reaching out to your own community and not just focusing on like the bigger picture. Yeah, there's that saying, right? That like, you know, what I think it's like 95% of life is just showing up. So with that, you know, that's what I think about quite a lot, you know, uh, because like so many people, they either like don't think they're good enough to do something or they're not the right person to do something. Or it's like, well, why does this have to be me? Surely there's someone who's, you know, better or smarter or knows more or can do things better. Right. But the idea is just like if most of life is just ultimately showing up, then just just do it. Right. Like just show up. You don't have to be like the most knowledgeable or the smartest person or whatever. It's just like, no, just do it. And, you know, ultimately um, things happen. Also, I think it's important for a lot of people to just listen to voices who have a perspective into all these different happenings and just listening and learning and then actively like if somebody says something that's not true, just speaking up and being like, oh, well, that's not true. Like you don't have to actively organize. You can just, you know, plant a seed like an idea and just keep learning yourself. and, you know, just a bunch of unlearning your own ideas sometimes. You pass that on to everyone around you and your social circles and your children, and that helps a lot as well. Definitely. I mean, unlearn unlearning your own ideas is like, that's basically the cornerstone of Marxism, right? Like, I think, like, Marx said that, like, Marxism is the ruthless criticism of all that exists. That starts and ends with your own thinking on topics, right? Like, the second I read some Marx, and I, I realized that this was, like, a whole thing, and then I read that quote, <laughs> And I'm like, okay, well then, 
basically everything I've known about everything is wrong up until this point. So you do have to like unlearn everything and then ultimately realize that you're going to be wrong about most things. So that's something that I think about family that you talked about, JJ, is like getting through to your family because these are the people who taught you almost everything. So everything that they've learned can be through traditions within the family for so long. And what we're talking about is... Yes, like generational trauma and stuff like that. Yeah, and we're talking about... Well, yeah, and we're talking about literally a whole new cultural revolution that was mentioned earlier, essentially. And especially just teaching like a whole new ideology such as Marxism, you know, that's genuinely profoundly changing for these families and these old people who don't really want to learn any new tricks. But at the same time, you know, we should respect them in that sense. But at the same time, as revolutionaries, we should try and get through to them. I've tried it. It's been costly. You know, you get into arguments. It's very upsetting, deeply personal, because these are the people who raised you ultimately and have got nothing but love for you more than everybody else. But like capitalism is going to kill us all. We have to work together. Interesting points. And and the whole thing about like teaching your elders and trying to talk to them and get through to them. I think there's this idea that age makes you stagnant and that, you know, you can only move forwards. You can't look backwards, but you know, they have a lot of wisdom. They have a lot of reasons for why they believe the things they do. And if we can learn why, you know, we can take that knowledge and apply it to the world around us. Like history exists for a reason. History is not linear. It's kind of and it's not circular either, but it all kind of exists at the same time in a way because it all influences each other. And, you know, I see this idea being thrown around a lot in like the Western esoteric occult communities, the idea of like history, all existing time, all existing at the same time. Therefore, that's why it's important to do ancestral work, which if you bring it out into like the non-spiritual world is essentially, you know, working to undo generational trauma within your elders, which I think is so important for like the uh-huh. revolution because, you know... If you want to talk about class consciousness and mobilizing mass movements of different kinds of people, you have to address the older population as well. And I think, you know, the the leftist movement sometimes is a little ageist in that they think, oh, young people can't critically think like their thoughts aren't important or like the older generation won't get it. You know, so what what does that leave us with? Like the 20 something year olds? That's not a large chunk of the population. We're all broke. So how are we going to do anything, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and just to help back up the elderly there is my nan was telling me when I wasn't going to school, my great nan, that like when she was in school, they had the cane, so she'd have got a whack. People need to realise that like, even white folk in the imperial court literally got caned in school to get smacked with the stick if they were being naughty. Like the children in like Britain for many, many generations used to get beaten into submission like no shit and this these are the generations who have raised you know our parents so you're gonna get a totally crazy outlook on what it looks like to rebel and stand up for yourself from people who were literally beaten by a stick you know within a couple of generations like no bullshit it's also a a cultural thing right i think like asia generally like you know respects elders but here we we sort of don't not only do we sort of not but we have because capital has a complete iron grip here we we almost do the opposite like we're like we have a complete infatuation with youth and beauty to an extent that's just sort of 
just creepy. Just yeah. too like not only is youth sort of has no limit, if that makes sense. That's why you get like really young ten year olds being sexualized and everything. It's like youth in the West generally is seen as this sort of golden chalice, right? And that is because of capital ultimately. You know, everyone's trying to either sell us well i mean it's either clothes or it's makeup or it's you know whatever it is like selling us ideas (laughs) well i mean yeah definitely that as well like ideological reproduction there's that also weird situation where you know you're told to idolize your youth like you're gonna go grow old at the same time telling people like you need to grow up and like do all these different things like you got to get into the workforce once you turn 18 (laughs) you have to move out so yeah you end up with people with like a stunted emotional growth but like functioning in their day-to-day life like adults and i think that's also where a lot of issues with cognitive dissonance arise because people are so used to cognitive dissonance it's their whole existence is cognitive dissonance and not being able to recognize that one fundamental thing about your day-to-day life isn't going to help your understanding of everything else i mean it's also like there's also an intersection there directly with buddhism right like it's the idea that like you know, your your mind is somewhere other than where you are currently, right? It's 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 like when yeah. you're young, you're you're supposed to think about being old or whatever, and then when you're old, you're just supposed to idolize your youth, right? It's the idea that you know you should be you should be thinking about something, anything other than you know what is currently. Mm-hmm. And there's not much living in the moment, and when there is living in the moment, it's about like partying and like drugs and psychedelics and exploring just. Not necessarily the best things, I guess. Or excess. Or it's like, Living in a moment no, is definitely. a lot about excess, I think. Yeah, it's like hedonism. It takes money. Yeah. It takes a lot of money if you want to do it. I mean, you can't live in the moment if you got no money and you're struggling for like the next five minutes, ten minutes. Or what I've noticed they, they do a lot is they like use these ideas to actually deflect class consciousness. So there are a lot of companies now who, instead of like actually doing things that would help people like you know raising the wage or whatever instead they get everyone to download a mindfulness app and then whenever you go to them with like any real concerns about like hey man we're like actually not getting paid a lot they'll just say oh yeah just do another meditation session on your app right so it's like this this whole thing has actually just become a way to deflect from actual real change right it's become a a scapegoat or a cudgel essentially they're they're using these ideas to actually deflect from meaningful change so, I mean, we're pretty much done with the questions here, unless you've got any, like, final messages or, or, or any questions for us before we ask for your plugs. Um, I don't think so. I think we covered a lot of different things that we could have talked about and how they're all interconnected. So, yeah, thank you. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah, no, thank you. We, we could have really talked longer, but we'll let you go so you're ready for work. But yeah, thank you very much for opening up on your experiences. Hopefully we can just build this series and then have a couple of more comrades give their answers and really just shed light onto this obviously fucking evil that's going across the land and too many people weren't saying nothing until it was fucking too late. Unfortunately, it fucked up, but this is what kind of liberalist capitalist hellhole we fucking live in. I think we should probably send a very special fuck you to all the liberals who, you know, were uh, spreading China lies one week and then hashtag stop Asian hate the next week. Definitely. Yeah. 
That's it. I mean, I mean, reading that article, like why, why the China hate, and then on that same article, like at the bottom, they suggested it was just like China is going to destroy the world. You know, it's insane. It's so insane because it's usually the very same authors. Like, I don't know what piece you're talking about. I don't even know where it was, right? But I guarantee, if you click that author and then scroll back three six months through everything else they've written, I guarantee you they've written like, you know, China's the biggest enemy. China's coming for us. You know, the US. Should do something about China, like because it's it's hegemonic, right? It's the it's the ruling ideas of the bourgeoisie. They all they all exist in that stew, right? That's what they do. They anytime you know the 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 United States has an official enemy, you know everyone in those you know the CNN and the MSNBCs of the world, you know they they adopt that that idea. So then all the writers there get assignments on you know suddenly you have to write you know three hit pieces on China. You know it's it's just like it's just it's insane. I think it's also like in the way when people write articles like that, they're deflecting responsibility for the damage they're doing, right? And it also, when you pretend to care, you give validity to the system that you're a part of. Like now, oh, America cares about you, therefore you don't need revolution, while completely disregarding the amount of damage they're doing, you know? Yeah, so Judy, can I just ask you, because somebody asked on Reddit, or they said in the comments, ask some real non-centered Chinese, what do you think? Like, have you got any initial reactions to that? Specifically to what? I'm sorry. A comment that said on this conversation, ask some real non-censored Chinese what they think. Oh, they think you've been censored. Oh, that's funny. They think you're not a real Chinese um, and you've been censored in some way, shape or form. Um, I mean, this is just... This is literally what we're talking about here, just absurd realities that people are living with in the brain. Why would you say that comment? I, what makes them feel so smart? I think it's always interesting to hear these comments because I'm, I'm, I find it amusing because, you know, you will only, you say listen to minority voices, but you will only listen to the ones that support your imperialist agenda. When somebody goes Whoa. against it is when you decide not to listen. So that selective hearing and that cognitive dissonance, you know, good luck to you for having those kind of thoughts. And you know, if you want to assume that I'm on like CBC payroll or being censored, you know, I wish I had that money. I wish they were paying me for the work I'm doing uh-huh. because they don't know I exist. The closest generation I have to have lived in China that I know for sure is like my great grandparents. So I don't have that much of like a citizen connection to China at all. So why would I be censored? They don't know I exist. You know, like if anything, I'm more Malaysian than I am Chinese culturally at this point. So if you want to assume that I'm like being censored, I'm on payroll. You know, I can't do anything and change your mind because you're so obviously causing your own cognitive dissonance and listening to what you want to hear. So those people, you know, I just kind of let them roll away. That doesn't really matter to me. So sad, but like your answer is like something that like maybe hundreds, thousands, hundreds of thousands, millions of people are going to be forced to deal with fucking going through life with people being absolute insane people, like basically just being straight out racist. So, uh, I mean, obviously my heart goes out to you, obviously ignore this bullshit, as you said, that people are just overtired. The flipping cognitive dissonance, they're not even living like human beings, they're living like parasites and the bourgeoisie's ruling class ideology is fucking pulling every single string in the fucking neural circuit, powered by fucking commodity fetishism. I mean, we could also just do, like, an entire series on, like, conspiratorial thinking, because I have, like, so much interesting shit to say on that topic. 
But that is like conspiratorial thinking, right? The idea that like, you know, only people that are being censored can have something to say positive about, you know, any country other than their own. I feel like it's a very sinister, like roundabout way to censor people who are saying anything positive. <laughs> oh, definitely. I mean, that is the role it plays, right? Like it's it, it's an attempt to invalidate anything anyone says, because the implication there is that only people who are being paid or only people who are under yeah. the control of the government could possibly have anything to say about yeah. that government, right? And um, well which it, it's 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 really strange to me. You know, I had sort of I had the same conversation with someone in my YouTube comment section the other day about Russia, right? I was telling him that, like, my man, there actually are people out there in the world who view the USSR positively, right? And they actually you know, miss it and they want to go back. And I was showing him study after study, and uh, and he was just like, no, the, all these people are being paid, and and it becomes so detached from reality that you can't talk to these people anymore because being paid by who the ussr doesn't exist my man it's gone right like it's been gone 30 years and realistically a lot longer right so so who are you to who's paying who who which country is paying this pollster stood on a street corner to speak highly about a country that doesn't even exist anymore uh, it, the whole thing makes absolutely no sense. I tell you who it is. It's fucking the White House paying the CIA to cause leftist infighting. I mean, I mean that dude wasn't a leftist though. That dude was like he was mad conservative. He was just you know trying to get his comments in on my comment. You know. Yeah, people out there with shadows, Putin books. And you know what's really strange is that. People assume that, okay, listen, in America, your government does fuck all for you, right? Let's be real. It doesn't do shit for you. Here in the, yeah, exactly. Same here in the UK, right? We, we, we basically get fuck all from the government. But the idea that China, if you look at what China's done just over the past like 10 years, the, the average person walking in the street has had infinitely more positive interaction with their government than we have from ours at all. So when your government actually does shit for you and actually like, you know, alleviates a fuck ton of the population out of poverty. You know, 70% of millennials in China own their home, right? You cannot fucking find a statistic like that anywhere in the West. I don't care what country you go to. I don't care if it's, you know, France, Germany, here in the in the UK or America. You cannot find 70% of millennials owning their house anywhere in Europe or you just can't, right? So if you just think about if you lived in a country that enabled 70% of millennials to actually buy their own home. Sure as fuck, those people would have positive things to say about the government, right? So, yeah, the whole thing's insane. The idea that, like, you can't say anything about the government without being paid by them is, is, is insane. Also, the idea that, like, oh, I hate, hate the Chinese government and not the people, while completely oh, disregarding yeah. that, like, 90, 95 million Chinese people are, like, of the Chinese Communist Party, like... Yeah. Like, by saying you don't like the government, you are saying you don't like the people because the government actually represents Definitely. the people there. And they cannot conceptualize that idea because, the you know, the government Definitely. never actually represents the proletariat in the West. Definitely. I think I saw that. I think the, you know, the actual membership of the party is, I think it's 500 million. I, that's the number I saw. So would you actually have, like, a party that has that many people as a member of it? Yeah, of course they're going to have positive things to say about because that's them, right? And it is. It really is just an attempt to separate the government from the people because, and again, it's parapolitics, right? Like I didn't really get into this because it's like 
too attached to the conspiratorial thinking thing. But in their mind, they know that in the in the United States and in the UK, you are not your government, right? Like the government is actively antagonistic to you and your interests. So what they're doing is they're projecting that onto China and they're saying, no, 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 no. We hate the Chinese government, not the people, right? Those two things can't be the same thing because here in this country, they hate, we, you know, the government works against us. So over there, the government has to work against them as well. So that, you know, it's just essentially projecting <laughs> the same dynamics of the West onto a country that doesn't, it doesn't work yeah. like that. That's something I hate so much, like the projection, like taking everything out of context. And that's also, give me one second. <laughs> Yeah, that's all good. Dogs, let's, can we just all just accept that dogs are the best animal? Like, I don't think you can find a better one. Human? Dude, no. Dogs are infinitely better than people. What are you talking about? No, because dogs show the best parts about human beings, don't they? Because they exist to human beings needing to support each other's family and be safe when you sleep at night. So we bet them down from wolves because we're just like Dr. Doolittle's down a heart and we can work with other animals and species. Dogs are better than people easily. There's really no contest. As I was saying about like the projection of Western dynamics onto like the global South, mm. I think, you know, that's another aspect of like western exceptionalism like everything revolves around us everyone thinks the way we do and that's very much like white supremacist thought as well absolutely yeah it's the idea that everything has to function the way it functions here which like brings me to like the whole idea of like ethnic groups within china and the uyghurs right yeah and like how the whole the whole definition of like han ethnicity didn't exist until the west came into china and then China was trying to break out of imperialism. They needed an, a single identity for people to prescribe to, to unite. And that's why like Han ethnicity existed because you know, China is very regional in terms of like mm -hmm. their discrimination in a way. It's like, oh, you're from this region and I'm from that region. People don't, don't really identify as like I'm a Han ethnicity or whatever, which right. makes it completely ridiculous to create any sort of ethno state out of China because the ethnic groups are so they intermingle and coexist in a way that, you know, ethnic groups don't coexist within the West because we've, you know, our concept here of ethnicity and race is very different from how it exists in China. And that's not saying there's no racism or like discrimination, but the way it functions is very different. Hmm. God, that's interesting. Right. Yeah. I mean, the, the point is obviously not to say that like China is some kind of like, you know, perfect country because there are, it's impossible for anything to be perfect. Right. So of course they do things wrong. Of course there are imperfections. Of course, blah, blah, blah. There's tons of room for improvement, etc. Right. Like no one's trying to say that like China is everything good on earth and, you know, the West is everything bad on earth. Right. Like reality just, just doesn't really work that way. But the, the situation is that you can't pretend that all the dynamics that exist here exist there in the exact same way. Gigi, can you speak Mandarin? My Mandarin is <laughs> crap. I can understand <laughs> it perfectly fine. Like I can watch Mandarin TV without subtitles, but I cannot speak it for the life wow. of me because my family is, um, we're actually from like the south of China, so we speak Cantonese. Mm. So I speak Cantonese fluently, but oh. I do not speak Mandarin fluently. I'm learning Mandarin and I have, I have the opposite problem. Like I can, I can read Mandarin really well, but when I listen to someone speak like, Oh my God, that's it. Like, it's so difficult for me. Like but I can, I can read it. That's fine. But as soon as I like listen to a person speak it, it gets 
really strange really quickly in my head because I don't know if it's like just because when you maybe it's my course material because there obviously there are so many different just like there are accents in you know anywhere you go there are so many different like accents and like obviously there are dialects that's like Fujianese and everything there are so many like accents within China. So, and because it's such a, obviously it's a tonal language. So like sometimes a different accent on the same word sounds like a different word or a different tone. And it, it, it just, it just blows up my little head. Yeah. And they like use completely different words for the same thing sometimes in Mandarin, because, you know, we, we call it all one language, but technically there's like a bunch of different dialects within Mandarin itself. And people think of Chinese as like a single language when it's Chinese has six language families and 200 recognized languages, though there's probably a couple thousand dialects. And they all yeah. kind of influence the Mandarin within the region that it's spoken. So it's very hard to understand, like, some Mandarin speakers, or you can identify immediately, like, where they're from based on their accent. Definitely. I actually mentioned it because Ryan speaking Mandarin. Ryan, I was hoping that you'd use this opportunity to practice a word or or um, a sentence which you've been saying it's a good opportunity to practice and so i'm going to go to china at some point like like that's going to happen so when i'm doing like all my course material i'm like going through the actual course material that they're trying to teach me to study and then on the side i'm like doing travel things if that makes sense and like the most important thing that i've decided it's going to be important for me to actually be able to say is uh Chongwen Bu Hao, which is essentially like I don't speak Chinese well. Um, and I think that's essentially just going to get me out of a, a, a lot of uh, situations. I love that for you. That's great. <laughs> <laughs> because you can go through like all of the, the course material and like, I'm doing the HSK, so it's like HSK. But it's important to like, because sometimes when you, so when babies learn languages, right? Like whatever whatever language it may be, it's just immersion. Essentially, you just, it's just mm-hmm. what's around you. And there's this really, there are like many different language theories on like, what's the best way to learn a language. And there's this idea that like, it should be memorization. So they give you like a ton of stuff and just to memorize it. But I think that that's, that's terrible. Like I'm, I'm fairly convinced that that's a trash way of learning anything. Well, I actually went to university for linguistics and like child language oh. development. Um, so it's interesting because like the immersion part and also i think people forget that production like um versus listening and hearing versus writing are completely different areas of the brain and skills so it's really you can't really say like one way is the best it's just like a combination of like just using it just use it and practice it in any sort of way you can and that's probably going to be good enough (laughs) as like the best you can do because Grammar is like innate. There's a certain like, you know, you understand certain things and you might not be able to uh, like explain exactly why this is right or this isn't. But oh, yeah. it's just kind of like internalized. So you just kind of Oh yeah, Chomsky. It. it was Chomsky, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're like there's like linguistics theory. That's interesting. I think I've always said that like we in Britain should be learning other languages and we just don't like it. I mean, it's not that, really by the way, is also white supremacy. Yeah, anyway. of course. Right. So like the idea that like every other country in the world has to essentially learn two languages, right? They have Thank to learn their native language. language. Yeah. It's just English. That's how I am. And they have to learn English, right? Because not only is English the international language of business, but also the land, air, and the sea. You know, most places speak English. 
mainly because at one point they were colonized by the English, right? Yeah, or they're going to have, like, English tourists or fucking some shit like that. Yeah, again, which which is another element of um, colonialism, essentially, right? I mean, yeah. at current day, or like like imperialism, I guess. Because here's the thing, right? Like the idea that we can, you know, go somewhere, invade it, colonize it, and then even when it was when it's given back to its native population, it's still like, yeah, but we're still going to just have some companies set up there that are going to sort of facilitate travel to and from this country on a tourism industry perpetually. Gigi, um, before we let you go, though, please tell our listeners where they can find you, share any plugs that you want people to go and follow. Well, I'm like involved in a bunch of different things, but we're kind of <clears throat> still sort of ephemeral and organizing. So if you want to keep updated on like the different organizations I'm a part of that will start popping up, you can, I guess I'm most active on Instagram at gg.w.wong so that's j-i-j-i period w period w-o-n-g and the other thing i guess for the chinese diaspora um definitely follow the wechat project on instagram because we're doing a lot of work trying to dispel right-wing myths within the chinese diasporic population which i think is important so yeah that's where they can find me Boss, we'll definitely include all of that in the show notes. Thank you so much for your time and your experiences that you shared with us. Yeah, thank you for having me. It was a good conversation. I really enjoyed it. Absolutely. Absolutely. It was a pleasure. Uh, we hope to build up a series and this being the first of that series, which you can look back on and be proud of. And I'm happy that you spent this time with us. Just like we love yeah. this time with you. And to everybody else that was xenophobia and Marxism, hashtag one. If you feel like you'd make a great guest to this series and contribute, we're looking for more UK comrades to speak on this. But as for the show, you can follow us on Twitter at lumpen underscore radio. We do have a Patreon. You can support us at patreon.com slash lumpenpodcast. Next month, we've got a Save the People program going out. You're going to see all pictures and whatnot from that. The money from the Patreon is going in a back pocket to invest in some kind of capital to Amazon. It's going to go out and save the community in my estate. just want to give a huge thank you to our Patreon supporters. It means the world keeps this project kicking. So thank you so much, Jake. Joe, Rev Left Radio, The Mash Line, John Gregory, Jessica, Slaughter Round, Gemma, Mary Williams, Seville, Awu, Sir Mick, Val, Stephen, Emily, Lucy, some random actors, Kieran, Monkey, Faulty, and Nico. You all know who you are. We all have boss relationships. If we don't, let's engage and get together. Thank you so much for the support. To everybody else, workers and lumpen of the world unite.